The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. Uh, so like Trevor said, my name is Jonathan Franklin. Uh, I'm the media director um, here at TCGS, which pretty much means I'm usually on the other side of the microphone, um, so it's a little weird. Um, I didn't know how to turn it on, so that was a plus. Um, so it's a little weird being on this side, um, but I'm excited to have the opportunity to teach today. Um, thank you, Trevor, um, for the opportunity. Um, by way of, of introduction, I wanted to share um, with y'all a fun fact um, about myself. I love questions. I love asking questions. I love receiving questions. Um, I had an interview the other day um, with a prospective new hire, and she came with a list of questions, um, probably like a page and a half, and I was ecstatic um, just because I love that interaction. I um, have ever since I was a kid, and much to my wife's distress, this has continued on um, into my adulthood um, and into our marriage. I love asking questions, and I ask them frequently. Some of them um, are important, and they have value, um, they have meaning, um, like, hey, would you like me to pick anything up for you while I'm at the store, or what, what, or what are some things I could do better um, to love and serve you, or, or how many minutes are left in this episode of Grey's Anatomy, or can we watch something else, <laughs> while others um, are not, um, and they, they tend to become inside jokes um, between the two of us. One of my favorites is one that... Um, I asked fairly innocently, um, just because I'm always questioning. Um, as we were driving through a, a construction site um, in downtown Charleston of a, of a skyscraper, or a large building, I guess they don't have skyscrapers in Charleston, but anyway, um, I asked, how did that crane get there? How do you think that big old crane just came into existence in the middle of Charleston? My wife thought this was the funniest thing ever, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm not sure. I wanted answers, and I still do. <laughs> and, and after the minutes this weekend that I spent researching, I've come to the conclusion that it's one of two things. One, there's either a series of larger cranes that construct each of them, or it's just magic. And I, I'm not convinced that there is any other answer to that question. However, one of, one of my all-time favorite questions to ask and I'm pretty sure all of you have heard it in here, especially those who have toddlers, is the question, why? This one word has prompted hours of Google searching, sparked our needless conflict, restructured thinking completely, and brought many weary parents, thankfully Owen's not able to talk yet, to their breaking point. And it is this question that I'm excited that we get to ask this evening. Um, if you remember last week, Trevor talked about um, what Athanasius dubs as the divine dilemma, um, which can be summarized, you'll see it on the screen, um, as God loves us and loved us into existence, but God must keep his word and deal justice towards sin. It's the question of how at the same time can God love us completely and yet deal justice towards sin. And we learned last week that God provides the answer to this question, um, the, to the divine dilemma through the incarnation, the eternal word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. This week, we get to ask the question, as I said before, why? 
Why did it have to be this way? Why was the incarnation necessary? To answer these questions, we're, we're going to look at the passage that, that Dallas read for us, Philippians 2, uh, 1 through 11. And I'm going to mix things up a little bit. Um, I'm going to start in the middle um, in verse 5, and then we'll work our way um, out. Um, and, and we'll look closely at, at what Paul ponders, mainly in verses 5 um, through 9, um, the incarnation of Christ. And then we'll zoom out to see how he calls us to respond to this everlasting wonder. Uh, but first, um, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for the church. Thank you for an opportunity um, to worship, um, to sing songs um, that praise you as our second Adam, um, the one who comes to save us hell-bound men. Lord, thank you for coming to save us. Thank you for this season of Advent that we look forward um, to your first coming and look even more forward to your second. Father, I pray that with all the, the distractions that typically come with this time of year, with the holidays and travel and presents, um, that we will not get distracted from reflecting on the everlasting wonder that is the incarnation, God becoming man. I pray that this fact that, that we have probably heard since our childhood never grows old to us. That we will continue to reflect on it, to meditate on it, and to internalize it, and go out and spread the joy that is Jesus. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So we'll be starting today in Philippians 2, um, like I said, verses 5 and 8, kind of in the middle um, of that passage. And it reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Now, there's a lot to, to unpack here. Um, if you've read through church history, you know that there have been multiple church, whole church councils that have been held on this exact topic. So sit back and relax as I unpack it in less than 30 minutes. But all jokes aside, these are weighty matters, and they are core beliefs of our shared faith. And therefore, it is vital that, that we wrestle with these truths. And because they're so significant, clarity is, is vitally important. So it's helpful to start this discussion by re looking at this passage and addressing the things that Paul is not saying when he writes this letter to the Philippians. First, Paul is not saying that Jesus merely came in the appearance of man. That is to say, Jesus did not take a page from the Greek gods, from Zeus, Hades, Poseidon, or several species of alien in Doctor Who, and pop on a human suit and take a tour of the earth. While phrases in, in this passage, such as being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, may elicit this um, confusion and elicit this interpretation, that is not the intention of the text. 
it's helpful when, when faced with some of these more confusing passages to take a step back um, and look at the author as a whole, look at, at what some of his other books, look what the rest of this book has said, or because all of Scripture is God-breathed, we can look at the entirety of Scripture and use it to inform our interpretation of this passage, use it to create a, a foundation, um, if you will, uh, for interpreting these, these things that can, can seem more confusing. In this case, um, if we look back at some of the other works of Paul, in Galatians 4, um, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In this passage, Paul is asserting that God was physically born in Jesus. Uh, he did not simply appear as such. If we continue looking on in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul states in verse 5, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. In this verse, Paul uses the same Greek root when saying between God and men and between the man Christ Jesus. Showing the similarity there, there is fundamentally between the men and the man, Christ Jesus. If we zoom out a bit to the whole of Scripture and look at the book of Hebrews, uh, specifically in, in chapter 2, verse 17, which Trevor referenced last week, it says, Therefore he, being Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Christ did not just appear like us, but he was like us in every way, completely embodying everything that it means to be human, yet without sin. And these are just a handful of examples. If you read through the Gospels, you see countless examples of Christ showing his humanity. And we can use those examples, we can bring these together with all of the examples of Christ's humanity in the Scriptures to interpret this verse in Philippians. So based on what we know, what we know of Paul, what we know of the Scriptures, we can confidently say that when Paul states that Jesus was found in human form, or when he was in the likeness of men, he is not saying that Jesus was just a divine being taking on the appearance of humanity. Another thing that Paul is not saying in these verses is that in becoming human, Christ became less than God. This is the idea that when Christ came down, he hung up his divinity for a time and became completely and exclusively human. This is, this is another one of the centuries-old debates regarding what Paul means when he says that Christ emptied himself. Uh, does it mean that he, he poured out um, his divinity? Does it mean he left it behind? Does it mean that it's going to be that way for eternity? The, the debates around these two, two, two simple words have, have gone on throughout the centuries. But we can use the same method that we used previously to, to interpret this passage. By looking at another of, of Paul's letters um, to the Colossian church, we see that in, in chapter 1, uh, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, being Jesus. He says later in the, in the same book in, in Colossians 2, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Both of these are fairly clear assertions that Christ remains fully God, possessing all the fullness of deity, not just a portion when he takes on humanity. 
and, and taking all this into account, we can therefore confidently say that when Paul states Christ emptied himself and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, he is not saying Jesus became less than divine in becoming human. So you may be thinking, Jonathan, that's super helpful. We have learned exactly what he did not say um, in this passage. But what is it, so what is it that Paul is actually saying? So let's take a look back at, at verse 6. It reads, Who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Here Paul asserts that, quite plainly, Jesus was in the form of God. And the word Paul uses here for form can be translated to the specific character or essential form. This means that when we behold the baby in the manger, when we behold the boy in the synagogues, when we see the man with his disciples, and when we see the man on the cross, we are beholding the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, and the one by whom and for whom all things were created. The beauty and implications of this event are echoed all throughout Scripture. John 1 um, states that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then this same Word, it continues to read, saying, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as, of only, as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And through him, even though we have never seen God, he is made known to us. If we continue through Scripture, Colossians 1, and there's going to be a theme, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1. Colossians 1.15 says, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1.3 states, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Each of these verses attests to the fact that the fullness of God rests in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not like God, nor is he a portion of God, but Jesus was, is, and forever will be completely God. Before taking on humanity, before creation, before the beginning of time, Jesus had the fullness of God in his grasp. And if we continue reading, we see Paul is saying something profoundly beautiful about this fact. Starting again in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul is saying that even though Jesus is, it was in the form of God, he takes on the form of a servant. Takes on human form. And the word form here, used in form of a servant, is the same word he used earlier when describing Jesus as being in the form of God. And because of this similarity, it shows the totality with which Jesus fulfills both of these roles 
In the same way that Jesus embodies the fullness of God, Jesus embodies the fullness of what it means to be a servant. And by connection, what it means to be a human. And again, we come back to this phrase, emptied himself. And as we established, Paul doesn't mean that Jesus became less than God. Instead, he's referring to the taking on of humanity. And as we established before, this is not merely the appearance of humanity, but a grade A, genuine, run-of-the-mill human. And we see in the gospel accounts that, that Jesus develops from a baby to a man. He has emotions, experiences pain, he hungers, he thirsts, just like you and I. He's familiar with our aches and our pains, our grief and our sorrow, and has been tempted just like us in every way. How comfortable and beautiful is this fact that in the midst of our own suffering, to know and find comfort in that God knows and is familiar with our pain. In becoming man, Christ gives up the privileges afforded to him by being in the form of God to take on humanity. This is, this is what Paul means when he says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he gives it up to experience the fullness of human pain, suffering, and temptation, and to bear the wrath of God in our place. But here, here's the most mind-blowing, beautiful, and awe-inspiring fact of this whole thing. He didn't have to. The Son had every right, being in the form of God, from the beginning, before the beginning of time, before creation, before humanity was created, to claim the glory, majesty, and privilege afforded to that title. And as we touched on last week, God would have been completely justified in doing so. The sins of man, our sin is great. And the holiness of God demands that justice be paid. And because of the stain of sin, we stand guilty before God and are deserving of his wrath. But instead, the eternal son takes on flesh and dies on a tree that he created because he loves you that much. Instead of punishment, we receive grace and mercy. Instead of death, we are given life. When we put all that, that Paul is saying together here, um, we are brought to confess that, that Jesus is at the same time both fully human and fully God. This is, this is what is called the, the hypostatic union, the idea that Christ, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. And while based on Scripture we can confess these truths and hold them dearly with confidence, like many things you read in Scripture, there, there's this air of mystery that is surrounding how this all works out. And, and in wrestling with this mystery, I've been helped by this quote um, by a man named Charles Octavius Booth. I mean, it reads, We do not understand this mystery, that is, how the Son of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, took upon him the seed of Abraham, and was made in the likeness of men. But there are two things that we do understand. First, 
A being possessed of the divine nature and exhibiting superhuman excellencies of mind and character has appeared in human nature. And second, that such a being was and still is the crying need and longing desire of mankind. We need an Emmanuel, a God with us. We need, uh, needed a day's man, a mediator, one whose nature, position, and character might enable him to appear between God and man and lay hands upon both. Such we now have in the God-man Christ Jesus. What a beautiful thought. And we may not understand the intricacies of how the incarnation plays out, how the creator of the universe could take on flesh that he created, or the way in which he knit himself together in Mary's womb, or the way in which he was simultaneously wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and holding together the very fabric of the universe. We may, we may never fully know in this lifetime the fullness of the incarnation, but we can, just like Booth states here, be confident of two very important truths. The incarnation happened, And it remains to this day our greatest need. So now we get to the question that we've all been waiting for. Why? Why did it have to be this way? Why did God have to send his son in the flesh to answer the divine dilemma and purchase our freedom? Why couldn't it have occurred any other way? Why couldn't we just do it on our own? And I could stand up here asking many more questions. But the answer to this question comes in two parts. First, only a human could pay the debt that was owed. It was man who brought the corruption, corruption into God's perfect creation. It was humanity's sin, therefore it was humanity that had to pay the price of sin. And God, being maximally holy, could not tolerate human corruption and sinfulness. And at the same time, God, being maximally just, could not simply pass over the sins of humanity. Therefore, Christ took on the form of a human on our behalf. Uh, We we return to Hebrews 2, um, which states, Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So Christ had to become human to help us. And praise the Lord that he did, because in becoming human, And through the work of the cross, Jesus becomes our second Adam, just as we sang about earlier. And we can rejoice in the words found in places like Romans 5. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, being Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The second reason the incarnation was required is that that while the debt had to be paid by a human only God could do what was necessary to pay the debt 
The stain of corruption on humanity was such that we needed someone who could not only die in our place to fulfill the punishment for sin, but also live in our place to restore that which, which, which had been corrupted. This required perfection. But as, we, if, as we've clearly seen throughout Scripture, even the so-called heroes of the faith don't even come close to this perfection. Immediately after the fall in Genesis 3, God promised that there would come from the seed of woman one that would crush the head of the serpent. And from that moment, as we read through the Old Testament, we're waiting on the one that will accomplish this. We read God's promises to Noah, to Abraham, to David, and anticipation builds for the seed that will come and reign over the people of God. We read prophecies that tell of this one to come and the deliverance and glory that he will bring. But when we finish reading the Old Testament, when we get to the very end, we are still left waiting. Time and time again, a man of God rises up and time and time again he fails. Moses had a temper. Abraham was a liar. David was committed adultery and murder. So on, so forth. You could do it for every man in the Old Testament, man or woman in the Old Testament. So we find ourselves stuck in this paradox where a debt must be paid by a human, but every human being fails to live up to the standard. We need someone from the outside, someone who is outside of our mess. Has anybody watched the, the TV show Hoarders? No, I'm the only one, one person. Um, so each episode, Hoarders. So each episode, we're taken into the home of some poor soul living in the most cluttered, crowded, and many times disgusting um, environments you can imagine. However, when, when they interview said homeowner, this is completely normal life for them. They don't see the mountains of odd collectibles or the trash. Um, they've, they've grown used to it, and, and this is normal for them. And, and because of this, they're, they're unable to clean it themselves. So they, or most times a close family member, brings in someone from the outside to expose the mess and to provide help. However, usually the hoarder clings to their mess, and it requires this person on the outside to clear up the mess and restore this person's life. This is the same with human sinfulness. Humanity is so corrupt that we cannot help turning towards sinfulness. Scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is not a conditional statement. Every man, besides Jesus, who has ever lived is sinful, was sinful, will be sinful. So we need a total outsider. Someone completely outside, unfamiliar with our mess. Someone who is not complicit in the sinful and the corrupt mess that we have created. That is why it was necessary that God himself come down in order to satisfy the perfection necessary and bear the weight of wrath to atone for human corruption and sin. Now, I had joked with Trevor and Aaron that instead of a sermon today, I was just going to stand up here and read On the Incarnation by Athanasius. 
um, because he puts together sentences that I will probably never in my life think of creating. Um, and it's just absolutely beautiful um, and mind-blowing. If you, if you haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, but I will settle for this quote. He, he writes, For the word, realizing that in no other way could the corruption of human beings be undone except simply by dying. Yet being immortal and the son of the father, the word was not able to die. For this reason, he takes to himself a body capable of death in order that it, participating in the word who is above all, might be sufficient for death on the behalf of all, and through the indwelling word would remain incorruptible. And so corruption might henceforth cease from all, from all by the grace of the resurrection. Excuse me. Whence by offering to death the body he had taken to himself as an offering holy and free of all spot, he immediately abolished death from all like him by the offering of a like. For being above all, the word of God consequently, by offering his own temple and his bodily instrument as a substitute for all, fulfilled in death that which was required. And being with all through the like, like being body, the incorruptible Son of God consequently clothed all with incorruptibility in the promise concerning the resurrection. What a beautiful thought and confession. Why, why the incarnation? Why did it have to be this way? Because God loves you. So much so that he enacted the only, he enacted the only effective plan for our rescue. Setting aside his rightful privilege, taking on the form of a servant and dying for you and I. This, this is truly an everlasting wonder. And this brings us to our last question of the evening. How do we respond? In, in light of the everlasting wonder that, that is the incarnation, what do we do? What's next? Paul draws out two, two responses to the incarnation in this passage. Um, let's pick up where we left off, uh, verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to, glory, to the glory of God the Father. Through the incarnation, Christ has received the name that is above any other name. And our proper response, first and foremost, is to give Jesus the glory that he deserves. It's the bowing of a knee. It's the confession of a tongue. Through the incarnation, Christ provides us with the only means of salvation. We cannot in, in any way do this on our own. If, if we could, this would have not, this wouldn't, the incarnation would not have been necessary. But, but as I described before, our corruption is complete. The system is broken. Our works can do nothing to break us out and accomplish our own righteousness for us. Without Christ, we are lost. Therefore, we must cling to him. I love what, what Psalm 2 
um, towards the end of Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12 states, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Are you here tonight lost and without hope? Kiss the Son and take refuge in him. Are you hurting or broken? Kiss the Son and take refuge in Him. Are you bitter or burned out? Kiss the Son and take refuge in Him. I could go on and on and on. Our first and only proper response to the incarnation is to praise the Lord for His works and find our refuge in Him. Now, as I said before, we kind of we started in the middle, so let's, let's return to the beginning in verse 1 and see what Paul's intentions were for parsing out and pondering the incarnation here. Verse 1 reads, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul urges the Philippian church here, and through them urges us to find unity under the shared message of the gospel. I mean, look around. Look at the people sitting next to you and see what the gospel message has done. And even, even tonight, it is brought together a, of a group of a hundred or so previous strangers for no other reason than to worship the name of the Lord. It strengthens us and knits us together more than in, anything you can think of. Yes, more than fantasy football, Star Wars, your favorite TV shows, and even the good food that, that we're about to enjoy after the service. So in light of the incarnation... Let us together complete Paul's joy by uniting under the same mind and the same love in full accord and of one mind. Paul continues in this passage and urges believers to see the incarnation as the truest form of humility and urges us to follow its example. Again, he writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is what, what we read earlier. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says, in the light of the incarnation, the greatest and most beautiful act of humility this world has ever seen, follow the leader. It's your turn. Each of us has something to learn about humility from the incarnation of Christ. 
Yes, even us Enneagram 2s. Christ has every right to hold on to the privileges of being in the form of God, but for our sake he came down. Now, I'm not saying that we can ever attain to this level of sacrifice, but we can strive to be like Jesus. To see and anticipate the needs of others and to do anything, no matter the personal cost, to make sure to see that their interests and that their needs are satisfied. So therefore, having seen the beauty and everlasting wonder of the incarnation, may we even today, even this evening, even as we go out from here, may we complete Paul's joy by uniting together under the name of Christ, following the example of Christ in humility, and may we cling to Christ as our refuge and our only hope for salvation. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And after, before we continue to worship in song, I ask you just to take a moment and reflect on the fullness of the incarnation. What it means that God came down, took on humanity for you. And pray through how do you personally need to respond to the beauty that is the incarnation. There's some questions in your bulletin that can help guide you um, as you reflect and respond. Uh, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us so much that, that you enacted the only plan possible for our salvation that you, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but came down in the form of a servant, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, and died a death you didn't deserve so that we may find life and a relationship with God. May we, as we, as we move through this Advent season, may, may we continue to rejoice in this fact. May it, may it be at the forefront of our mind. God, I pray that, that this never becomes stale to us. That we, when we hear this message, we will continually taste and see that you are good. Lord, I pray this night that you will will stir hearts to action. You'll stir hearts to respond. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. And thank you for this church. In Jesus' name.